Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Hello and welcome to the Partly Political Broadcast episode 29. I'm Tian and Duyeb and this week, to avoid overheating like Hillary Clinton, I am recording all of this podcast while only in my pants. Yes, it's forethought like that that makes me wonder why I don't run for US president as well. Correct, it is because the thought of running for anything makes me a bit sad. Former Prime Minister and human red paint colour shark David Cameron has resigned as MP for Whitney, probably because he wasn't a fan of doing a job that would mean he'd have to speak face-to-face to several people whose lives he's been ruining since 2010. David Cameron, who during the EU campaign stated that Brits don't quit, has now even U-turned on that, quitting his second job in a year, presumably unaware that that won't look good for his job seeker's application. David Cameron's reasons for leaving are that he doesn't want to be a distraction, meaning it's highly likely he is a distraction at any moment now Theresa May will be announcing she's paid Richard Branson several billion pounds to open soil and green factories across the north of England. Cameron's resignation will of course trigger a by-election, allowing yet another Conservative MP to ignore Whitney's constituents for yet another decade. Allotment lover who's lost his plot, Jeremy Corbyn, has now been Labour leader for one whole year and, depending on who you speak to, has either destroyed the party forever or brought it back from the dead, which might explain Labour being such a zombie opposition to the Conservatives for the last 12 months. Meanwhile, Corbyn's leadership challenger and unintentional Alan Partridge impersonator Owen Smith said that taking on Jeremy was comparable to how he wooed his wife. Smith said that he had to beat off 1,200 schoolboys to get to her, which sounds very much like an afternoon Keith Vaz would have enjoyed. Apparently there were 1,200 boys and only three girls at Owen Smith's school, and despite that he found and fell in love with his wife, which is a lovely tale. But I'm not entirely sure how that's like a Labour leadership contest. I mean, I assume it means that out of every 1,203 voters, 1,200 won't be remotely interested in Owen Smith, and of the other three, only one will actually like him enough to commit to voting for him. Beating Owen Smith in brain fart of the week was disgraced, disgraced Conservative MP and absolute disgrace Liam Fox, who stated at a Conservative Way Forward event, name that seems paradox within itself, that British businesses were fat and lazy due to previous successes and that UK exporters are too focused on going to the golf course to sell their wares overseas. 
You can see why, as Liam Fox is Secretary of State for International Trade and is meant to be promoting British businesses abroad in light of Brexit, that he's angry with keen golfers, as clearly Liam Fox wants to be the one to give the country a massive handicap with his constantly below par behaviour. Being a Brexiteer, Liam Fox does seem to think that Britain will get what it wants from any global trade deals while completely ignoring what other countries want to do. So maybe he means being fat and lazy as a compliment to British business, thinking that like his fat and lazy self, it'll mean that European traders will have to come to us. Unfortunately, it's far more likely that British trade will just die of a coronary first, thanks to all the crap Liam Fox keeps feeding it. As I say every week, um, thanks tons for listening to this show, because without you, well, it'd be pretty pointless doing a podcast when I could just shout my weekly ire at a grapefruit with a face drawn on it, and you know, that's the sort of thing that causes rumours to start. Once again, uh, if you do enjoy this show though, please, please, please do let me know, uh, otherwise I will just assume that you're all grapefruits with faces drawn on, and then I'll spend a large amount of time wondering how grapefruits download things off the internet, and trying to work out if I should make this show more appealing to you by adding more segments and zest. Uh, if you want to contact me about anything to do with the show, uh, you can do so through various internet methods at Parpolbro on Twitter, our Parpolbro Facebook group, or partlypoliticalbroadcast at gmail.com, or just by thinking hard enough during the witching hour. Also, if you haven't already given this show a review on iTunes, please, 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 please do, uh, as it does really encourage other grapefruits to listen to. And if you're opposed to doing uh, that sort of thing, or you really hate iTunes with an absolute passion, uh, even though they've just announced an iPhone 7 that is both dust and water resistant, which means it'll be perfect uh, for when you go to a cremation where everyone's crying. Um, but look, if you are anti-iTunes, uh, then please uh, just maybe spread the word about the show uh, to people you know, or just whispering it as you go past grocery stores or the fruit section at the supermarket. Thanks, grapefruits. Uh, also, if you like this show, please, please check out my latest uh, stand-up comedy special, The World's Full of Idiots, Let's Live in Space, uh, which you can now download or stream for three English pounds from my website, which I think uh, that's worth about, uh, I don't know now, probably two dollars... Uh, it's worth, I don't know, like one Zimbabwean shilling. Uh, anyway, uh, you can get it from a website, uh, uh, Uh It's got loads of jokes in it about politics and racism and climate change and space and one really, really terrible pun that I am eternally very pleased about. Uh, on this week's show, uh, I'm going to be speaking to Mark Avery about climate change and his petition to ban driven grouse shooting. Uh, I'm going to be looking more at the future of the Labour Party. Here's a clue. It's more children of men than the Jetsons. And there's a brief look at the US presidential election campaign. But first... Education Secretary and a woman who constantly looks like she could eat metal piping, Justin Greening, has announced the government's plans for a ton of new grammar schools in England. Because what better way to encourage voters than to disappoint most of their children? As well as making sure loads of 11-year-olds end up in tears due to pressure and rejection, Professor Stephen Gorard from Durham University said that evidence states that any appearance of an advantage given to children who attend grammar schools is outweighed by the disadvantage for those who do not. The Institute of Financial Studies also said they increase inequality, and with grammar schools having greater selectivity, it means state schools will take in children with lower abilities, ultimately get lower results overall in national tests, and then be told they're failing, get shut down and turned into an academy. Former Prime Minister MP and lead replicant David Cameron said way back in 2007 that grammar schools were an issue that would show whether the Tories were now an aspiring party of government or a pro-grammar school right-wing debating society. Well, I guess with their aspiration reached and no one to debate against, they're very, very happy with the latter. 
Universities will be expected to sponsor a state school or set up a free school as a condition of them charging higher education fees. Presumably, secondary schools will then be in charge of primary schools, primary schools in charge of nurseries, and then a ton of babies will have to co-manage some maternity wards. Sounds about right. Faith schools will be able to allocate 100% of places based on faith rather than the 50% that they did before, which does sound quite terrible for a secular society with a growing atheist community. But at the same time, if children grow up to believe that a higher power than Theresa May might exist, then maybe, just maybe, they'll actually have some hope in life. Hospital bosses have warned that the NHS is at tipping point, which doesn't sound good. I mean, things must be bad if we're going to have to start leaving 10 to 15% in change for doctors after an appointment. Due to increased demand, the closing of services, the cutting of staff and rising costs in supplies, the current state of the NHS system could lead to shutting down more services and increasing charges amongst other terrible, terrible things. With Brexit also likely to cause a further decrease in NHS staff, the possibilities of a seven-day NHS are becoming less and less likely, even though that's what Health Secretary and John Carpenter's reimagining of the Muppet Beaker, Jeremy Hunt, is insisting happens. Ironically, if underfunding continues to happen, the weekend effect that Jeremy Hunt assuming already happens might actually come true. It's like an even more boring and far more depressing version of Field of Dreams. If you dismantle it, no one will come. If anything, maybe the only way to fix it is if we do all start to leave tips. I've always known Parliament needed fixing, and several times I've thought maybe they should just turn it off and turn it on again. But a parliamentary committee report says that the mass repair job the Houses of Parliament needs is going to cost £3.9 billion, and the MPs are going to have to relocate between 2022 and 2028 for the work to be done. Now, really, this should be an opportunity to relocate entirely to a actually working building, one that could maybe really fit the amount of MPs the UK has in it. You know, maybe one that isn't based in London so that they could kind of stretch across the UK a bit more, actually represent the people they're meant to represent and maybe so MB's expenses could cost a bit less. Or maybe we just let them move location every month on a really shitty bus with a different MB having to provide sandwiches each time. I mean, either that or we just give the 3.9 billion to the NHS, which is in desperate need of it, and let the MBs continue to sit in the House of Commons as it collapses on top of them. Imagine that, an actual dissolving of Parliament. Brilliant. We are once again approaching the season where it is the annual tradition for parts of the north of England to stage their own version of Waterworld, but with a constantly decreasing budget. MPs will parade around in wellies and raincoats, telling people who now live in a giant muddy bathtub that they will do some flood prevention, while instead the last government actually just cut flood defence spending. While the prospect of seeing just what colour Wellington boots Theresa May has is very exciting, or, you know, more likely if she'll just ride around on the back of a giant shark that she controls by speaking in its tongue. One thing that would actually make a difference to flooding is a ban on driven grouse shooting. What is a grouse, I hear you ask? Is it an angry mouse? Why are people driving them around so they can shoot at things? How much water can one grouse soak up anyway? Well, this week I spoke to environmental campaigner, writer and avid birdwatcher Mark Avery all about climate change and his petition to stop driven grouse shooting. And he explained all the answers to, well, none of those questions I've just said, but instead to actually real ones that actually make sense. Oh, and this week... Excuses, excuses! Ha! Fooled you. No excuses this week. This interview was done over Skype and it sounds pretty damn okay. I hope you all feel very, very proud of me. Uh, And again, huge thanks to Mark Struthers who made it sound even more alright. Right, here's Mark Avery. 
So um, the US and China have just uh, joined the Paris Global Climate Agreement. Um, do you think this is a sign that the world is finally starting to deal with climate change properly, or is it a bit sort of too little, too late? Uh, it is both, isn't it? I think it's very good news that um, the US and China came together to do this as massive sources of greenhouse gases. Uh, it sends a big signal to everybody else. If, if they're serious about it, with different cultures, different economies, completely different outlooks on the world, then why can't the rest of us get behind it? So we, it is serious. We are moving in the right direction. It is too little. We need to do more, but let's praise the progress that is being made. Uh, and it's not too late. It's pretty urgent that we get on with it. It's later than ideal. It would have been great if we got to closer to this position in 2009 when the Copenhagen climate uh, discussions took place. But that was a complete and utter flop, and everybody went away from that with their heads in their hands, thinking we've got to do better than this. So uh, I think it's a test of our generation and future generations, whether people across the world can come together and act for the common good. And what's happened in the last week or so shows that, yeah, there is movement. And why do you think it's taken so long for this? For, for, I mean, because the, the Paris, uh, Paris Globe Agreement was made, was it last year uh, that the countries got together? Was it earlier this year? I'm trying to remember. And it, last, year. last year, that was it. And, and it, but yeah, it's only been US and China have formally joined. There's so many countries that haven't yet. Why is it? Why are people so resistant to protecting the entire planet? <laughs> yeah, it does seem odd, doesn't it? Um these things take a while in politics. This, I'd say this is quite, this is almost quite quick, what the US and China have done. I think everybody's moving in the right direction. Um, let's celebrate what they've done. But uh, I don't know how many countries there are on Earth. It's about 190, isn't it? Yeah. Getting yeah. agreement between 190 countries which have different cultures, different economies, different standards of living, different religions, different levels of education. Getting everybody to agree on a way forward is if, I don't think I've got 190 really good friends, but if I did, <laughs> and they were all in the same place at the same time, and we all wanted to make a rather trivial decision, like where should we go out for a meal? We'd never make a decision. We'd end up at the kebab van because we'd run out of other options. <laughs> and getting international agreements is getting agreements between people, people with different views, different vested interests. It's tricky. Um, if there were only four countries on Earth, it would be a bit simpler. But there are 190 of them because of history. Um so, so it's gonna take a while. It's sure, take a while. Sure, yeah. I, I suppose it's just, I, and I, I'm fully aware of how naive kind of thinking it is. But part of me always thinks it's the whole planet. Surely we should all just go. Yep, yeah, let's save it. It sounds like a good idea. Um, well, I, th I think you're right, and I think the the thing that comes out of that is that you and I, as ordinary people, because we are ordinary people, we are kind of in charge of this in the democracy like the one that we live in, not 
a perfect democracy, but the more that we make our voices heard, the more we don't leave it up to politicians and moan about them, the more we get involved in political action, asking for what we want, and also, of course, individual action in in this case, in cutting down our carbon emissions ourselves. You don't have to wait for the government to decide on something to use less energy, and that's what lots of people are doing. So it's sometimes a bit of a cop-out to say that it's all down to governments because it's we elect them and it's partly up to us. But there are things, you know, I can't decide whether or not to build a nuclear power station on my own. I can't determine the mix of sources of electricity that come out of the socket when I plug my mobile phone in to charge it. So we're not powerless, but we do need governments to act. Sure. And, and something that you just touched on there, actually, was, I mean, I, I sort of wonder with projects like Hinkley Point, which I know now might not go ahead, but... Uh, uh, do you find that unusual? You know, we're in a country where there's been lots said that tidal power would be good in the UK, that we could do more with wind power because it's, the weather's endlessly rubbish. You know, um, it, is the fact that instead uh, this country's pushing ahead for, like, nuclear power and still with fracking and things, does that mean that we're behind other countries on environmental issues or, or we're misguided on them? You know, wh- why is the UK pushing for those sort of things instead of renewables? <sighs> <laughs> I'm sorry, that was quite the same. <laughs> it's, it's quite a big, it's quite a big question. Well, we we elected the uh, wrong government in Westminster yeah. last time and the time before. That's one reason why things have sl- slowed down. Um, there is, I think, not really any one single solution to reducing the impacts of climate change and reducing the amount of greenhouse gases that are up in the atmosphere. Um, I think we will need uh, nuclear power in the mix. There are all the problems that environmentalists, people a bit like me, many of them are my friends and mates, there are all the problems that we've said about nuclear power, Um, but there are some quite big advantages. It, it is a clean, uh, greenhouse gas-free way of producing energy, and it does work. There are massive problems with it, but um, there are problems with every form of uh, energy production. Uh, there are problems with renewable energy, so... Uh, I live in Northamptonshire. I'm talking to you from rural Northamptonshire. I can see uh, out of the window, I think it's 14 wind turbines in the distance. Uh, There are another nine or so that are even closer to my home that I can't see. I like them. I'm quite happy. I I give them a glance. I look at them, and when they're going round, it puts a little smile on my face because I think, oh, there's some renewable energy being produced. But there's massive opposition to wind turbines being put in the British countryside, and that slows down renewables. Then you mentioned mentioned tidal power. Tidal power is um, a good idea. 
Uh, let's take Seven Estuary. Seven Estuary, I grew up near Bristol, used to go bird watching on the Estuary of the Seven, uh, saw quite a lot of birds there. Massive tidal range, I think it's the second biggest uh, difference between high tide and low tide anywhere in the world, so great place to use tidal energy. But it depends how you do it. Um, right. You could create a lot of environmental damage to wildlife, migrating trout and salmon and eels and to the internationally important bird populations on that estuary if you just build a barrage across which has been suggested lots and lots of times i think we need to get cleverer in how we use energy in places like seven and there is some progress on that i think these things are not that easy um but i don't think governments have given them quite enough attention that uh, Politicians, all, all of them, well, actually, not quite all of them, which is worrying, but almost all of them make a speech about climate change is the um, greatest challenge facing the human race, uh, and that's it. And they go off and do something else. They worry about immigration or, I don't know, something, something else. But, um, um, but, um, they don't treat it as seriously as they say they're going to treat it. And it is a massive problem. So we need the best minds. We need investment. Uh, and there's not going to be one solution. There are going to be lots of solutions that add up to pretty much the solution, I think. Sure, sure. Yeah, it's um, I it like I said, it does just always baffle me that it does feel like you know you fix the you've got to fix the entire planet. We all live on it. It's very important. Um, I think. Well, I I always had this uh, the idea that you can make wind turbines look a bit more like those little fans that you put in um flower pots and things that children have. Uh, you know, multicolored. I think people would like that slightly more. I'm not sure. I'm not sure it's a good solution, but <laughs> maybe. Yeah. <laughs> We should try it. Let's, Definitely. Let's see whether all opposition disappears if I, you paint them pretty colours. Worth a go, isn't it? Worth a go. It tends to disappear after they're built. Right. People around here, I think, you go, well, oh, not so bad, actually. Now they're there. Sure. I don't mind them so much. But we don't like change. We are a very conservative country. Of course. Well, that sort of leads me to the next question, really, and I, I, I feel I almost should apologise for asking it, but um, do you think that uh, the possibility of, of, of Brexit, however it happens, is going to, might hinder climate change measurements in this country? Because I know, obviously, the EU brought in things like the cleaner beaches and cleaner air policies. Um, what are your thoughts on it at the moment as it stands? Well, I voted Remain, so I'm still one of the slightly grumpy, <laughs> quite nervous, uh, bit perplexed 48% of the country who woke up on was it the 24th of June, the day yep. afterwards, yep. going, oh my God, what have we done? We voted against something, but we don't know what we voted for, and I spent the whole of the day going, and I didn't vote for this anyway. So Brexit, um, let's be positive. Um, in the future, it's up to us. It's up to us in the UK, <laughs> depending on what the UK looks like, because the Scots might disappear. Right. Um, it's 
Somebody got a house to sell in Scotland. I'm quite wondering. I'm wondering whether <laughs> I'd like to move to Scotland. I think we all are. They're going to have a mass migration. Uh, yeah, <laughs> absolutely. But um, whatever the UK is going to look like is up to us. And so we could do a fantastic job on everything, or we could do a rather rubbish job. Um, at the moment. I don't have a lot of faith in this government doing a fantastic job on anything to do with the environment. Um, so I'm worried about the future. Um, you could say that the, the, the positive thing that comes out of this is that because the UK has been um, less enthusiastic about environmental measures in the EU than many other countries, at least the rest of the EU can get on a bit quicker without us. Sure. Um, but I'm not sure that's supposed to be a great boom for us left here, making our own way forward. I think wildlife, which is one of the things that I'm very interested in, and that's what I've mostly worked on in my professional, so-called professional life. The EU, being in the EU, has been a great help to wildlife conservation in the UK. It's not perfect, but every time... Uh, the British government has wanted to do something really stupid. We've sometimes been we've been able to go to the EU, and that has moderated it. The fact sure. that we're part of the EU with environmental laws has meant that politicians in the UK have been a bit more cautious about doing stupid things. So I am worried. No, I'm worried across the environmental spectrum about what might happen next. God, right, so and the, the idea that we might have to go on holiday to breathe clean air is slightly concerning. Um, <laughs> so um, your your current uh, your current campaign, um, you've currently got a, a, a petition going to ban um, uh, grouse shooting in the UK. Um, why is I mean, and and I'm I'm a city boy. Uh, I've grown up in London, so I know very very little about grouse shooting or why people do it. Why is it important to to ban grouse shooting? Um, you know, I, I should say I'm a veggie, so I don't like the idea of it anyway. But what you know, what effects does it have on the British countryside or environment? Why do you want to stop that uh, sport in particular? Yeah, it must, it, I mean, must seem a bit odd, probably. What what is all your question is? What is all this about? Yeah, basically, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And that is absolutely fair enough. And having started this campaign really two years ago, um, I'm chuffed to bits that. As we're speaking now, 119,000, nearly 500 people have signed a petition on the Westminster Parliament website called Ban Driven Grey Shooting. So if you want to have a look at it, you can Google it and see whether you um, would like to sign up to it. And that means that we're going to get a debate on this issue in Parliament. Nothing is going to change immediately, but getting a debate in Parliament is quite a big thing. So why do I want a debate and why do I want to get rid of grouse shooting? Um, I better explain what grouse is first. <laughs> it's a bird. It's a bird. It looks a bit like a chicken or a pheasant. Uh, it's a wild species. It lives on the tops of hills in attractive places like the North York Moors and the Peak District and the Yorkshire Dales and in large parts of Scotland. Um, so that's what a red grouse is. Driven grey shooting, I'll explain what that is, is when a line of rich people stand with their guns 
behind some little shelters called Grace Butts. They sound rude, but right. they're just <laughs> little, little walls where you stand. That's your shooting place. So you stand there with your guns and uh, a line of poor people about a mile or two miles away drive the hillside. So they walk across it in the line, scaring all the red grace towards the people waiting for them with guns. So the red grace go whizzing past this line, the people with guns, and people shoot at them. So that's what a red grace is. That's what grace shooting is. And because they're driven towards the guns, that's why it's called driven grace right. shooting. Are you with me so far? Yes, definitely, yeah. Yeah, yeah. it sounds very <laughs> okay. weird, though. still sounds very odd, yeah. <laughs> Well, it does sound pretty odd. Uh, it doesn't happen anywhere else in the in the in the world. There are red grace, or the same species as red grace, live all the way round latitudes in the northern hemisphere. Uh, nobody else does it like this, apart from us, and we've only done it for about the last hundred and fifty years or so. And it will cost you a couple of thousand pounds for days grouse shooting. So this is wow. this is for rich people so it's quite it's got quite a lot of snob value but right. it's just a sport i mean it's not very sporting uh it'd be more of a sport if the grace had guns as well. <laughs> um but it's a sport let's just remember that okay now you're not going to pay two thousand quid or maybe five thousand quid or more for a daily square shooting well, you're not going to anyway, no. neither am I. But the people who do aren't going to pay that much money for data ground shooting unless they can shoot lots of grace, which could be 100 grace each in a day. It's quite a lot of grace. Right. Uh, how do you get a lot of grace? Well, you have to manage the hills really intensively. So grace live in, they eat heather, seems unlikely in a way because heather doesn't look very yummy <laughs> but that's what red grouse eat so you manage the hills by burning them and draining them so that there's lots of heather um, so it's a completely unnatural landscape grouse more what you then do is uh, your gamekeeper tries to kill all the foxes and crows and stoats which you can do legally those species do not have legal protection, so you can trap them, you can shoot them, uh, so that they're not eating red grouse or red grouse chicks or red grouse eggs, so that there are as many red grouse as possible at the end of the summer, and the grouse shooting season opens on the 12th of August. Are you still with me? Yes, yes I am, yeah. So, still sounds a bit odd, doesn't it? But maybe not the type of thing you'd want to ban. The reason I want to ban it is that all that management creates problems for lots of other people. Uh, all that burning and drainage increases flood risk because the hills that are managed in this way shed water off the hills quicker than if they hadn't been managed for the benefit of red grace. So that leads to floods in places like Hebden Bridge has been in the Calder Valley in West Yorkshire has been flooded often and the people there believe that that's because of the management of grace moors up above their town. Right. Uh, so that, increase it, that, incre that increases home insurance bills. Uh, I own the house I'm sitting in at the moment. There's about 10 quid being added to my home insurance bill, just as to everybody else's, because of... Uh, flood risk so we're sharing the burden of flood risk at the moment 
And part of that, not all of it, but part of that is due to the increased flood risk because of grouse management. Uh, that management also increases water costs and it increases greenhouse gas emissions going back to climate change. So there's a whole load of stuff that you wouldn't think affected was bound up in this sport. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. That affects everyone. There's another thing as well. Right. Um, I'm a bird watcher. I like birds. Uh, I like all birds, uh, but quite a lot of bird watchers like birds of prey, things like eagles and falcons, and this bird called the hen harrier, which is a lovely bird, a little bit like a buzzard. Um, very good flyer. It's what harrier jump jets were named after. All of these birds of prey will eat red grouse. They've been doing that for thousands and thousands of years. But it's inconvenient for you if you want to sell a day shooting for several thousand pounds uh, if a load of birds of prey have eaten the grouse before some guy comes along wanting to shoot them. And so, although birds of prey have been protected since 1954, uh, they're killed. They're killed because they eat grouse, and that's illegal. So our national parks, the tops of our hills, places like the Yorkshire Dales, I see them as being wildlife crime scenes. Uh, and you can't have all those grouse to shoot unless somebody's killing lots of birds of prey. And we've been trying to stop that crime for years and years and years. We've been talking to grouse mall owners for decades and decades and decades, and things have got worse rather than better. So that's why I'd like to ban it. We'll get back to Mark in just a minute, but first... For any young people that listen to this, you might not remember, but the opposition used to be the party with the second largest number of seats in the House of Commons, who used to actually challenge and oppose things the government did. I know, I know, that's so 2008. 
Yeah, I understand. Get with it, Grandad. Now, of course, the opposition is either a party that for seven years just broadly agreed with the government and enjoyed having no identity at all, or a bunch of people who seem to think it's far more fun to oppose each other, led by someone who thinks it's too aggressive to oppose anything. It's almost as if the Labour Party have never heard of United We Stand, Divided We Waste Seven Months Pissing About While the Tories Punch the Poor and Eat the NHS. I've voiced my opinions on the Labour leadership on this podcast more times than the show has listeners. That's right, three times. But I feel it's important to point out, with the leadership election results being announced on September the 23rd, that the party is in crisis regardless of the outcome. Yes, I know that's the cheery sort of section that you really want in a weekly satirical podcast, and next week I'm hoping that you all smile as I report on exactly which bunkers are best to build for the upcoming apocalypse. But look, the thing is, there is a lot of anger, finger-pointing and weird blind hope from supporters of both Jeremy Corbyn and Owen Smith. And let's face it, hope only gives me less to talk about on this show, so strap in, mostly just for health and safety reasons. Let's go into why the Labour Party is in trouble either way. And no, I'm not going to go over every single gaffe either leadership candidate has done, because I don't want this week's show to be a week-long episode. Here, I'm just going to be looking at a rather laborious overview. Do do you see what I did there? No, I'm not, sorry. So firstly, let's look at what is widely reported to be the case. What will happen if Jeremy Corbyn wins the leadership election? Because, you know, he's unelectable. The Labour Parliamentary Party will probably refuse to work with him properly, speaking out against him in the press, refusing to take shadow cabinet positions, causing further uncertainty in the party from voters, and blaming him for everything possible from things he's actually done to the fact that the bus was late or someone on Twitter posted a smiley poo emoji incorrectly. The Labour Party's rating is currently at an all-time low, making it a really, really unfun party. You know, a bit like the one that you were invited to at school, but when you turned up, none of your friends were there, but you weren't getting picked up till 10pm, so you just had to eat loads of crisps and look at walls until time passed. Labour are currently trailing by 11 points under the Conservatives in all the polls, and whether that's distrust in Jeremy Corbyn and his continuous bad choices, which yes, must be a large part of it, or dismay at a party that can't hold itself together or work despite the odds, which is also, yes, a large part of it, none of this will probably change unless Martin McFly goes back in time and kills the Queen of England so no one ever has to sing the national anthem ever again. With all of this, a Jeremy Corbyn victory could cause the party to split, presumably becoming the Labour and Jeremy Corbyn's Labour, where they only do the bits that he wrote. This would allow the Parliamentary Labour Party to have the most seats and ultimately become opposition, but they won't have the members who voted for Corbyn who will probably leave if he doesn't get in, and therefore they'll suffer from a huge lack of funding, making campaigning much harder. Though I guess they could retain many donors who dislike Corbyn, which might balance it out a bit. Jeremy Corbyn's side of the split won't have the seat, so they'd become a minor party, but would probably keep many of the members who might move with them. Either way, the Conservatives will still have no real opposition for 2020. If Owen Smith wins, which is unlikely, mostly because his mouth works quicker than his brain, and when it does work, it cheers on whatever dog shit the mouth just did before then having to apologise. If Owen Smith does win, Labour could lose the large amount of new members who back Corbyn, again, losing them lots of funding. In an Ipsos Mori poll, Owen Smith only scored 7% in people thinking that he was an impressive MP and Prime Minister worthy, compared to 35% for Theresa May, so he's not hugely popular with the general public either. Yes, Corbyn scored 0%, and you do think, I mean really, Theresa May has the charm factor of a hyena wearing an ironic T-Rex t-shirt despite not knowing who they are, before then ripping your face off, so neither Labour candidates are doing very well. 
Smith's comments on how he'd refuse to have a Brexit or how he'd have a second referendum means that he won't be standing well with any of the people who voted Leave, which is 17 million people. And while 1.2 million of those people now say they regret their vote, it's not known exactly how many of those are Conservative or Labour voters, and so it's hard to say if that would make any difference at all. Though, chances are we won't have left by 2020 anyway, so it won't really matter. Jeremy Corbyn's comments on not staying in the single market means he won't appeal to most Remain voters as well, many of whom are Labour supporters, so that sort of doesn't work in reverse. Owen Smith, with his austerity is right banter, would also not appeal to those who voted for Corbyn due to wanting a change from Labour under Ed defeated by a sandwich Miliband or Gordon tired Walrus Brown. And it's very much that centrist stance that means Labour were just a light, half-hearted version of the Conservatives in 2010 and 2015 anyway, causing them to lose. However, the Parliamentary Labour Party would give Owen Smith their backing, so they would stay as a sort of mostly united party, just a united party that definitely won't win in 2020. But here's the really important bits, right? Regardless of who wins, they have to get Scotland back on side, which is hugely unlikely to happen ever since Labour stood with the Conservatives on the independence referendum. And if another independence referendum happens, it definitely won't be likely. But in the last election, Labour got 232 seats to the Conservatives' 331. The SNP took 56 seats. So even if by some miracle all the SNP seats went to Labour, they'd still be 43 seats short of winning. So that means they need swing voters to come on side. And no, sadly, swing voters aren't people who enjoy playgrounds. Although, to be fair, that would also be creepy, because they'd have to be old enough to vote. Look, forget everything I said. Proposed boundary changes by the government, announced formally this week, would get rid of 50 seats, like the world's meanest ever version of musical chairs. And with each constituency area being formed of 71,000 to 78,500 constituents, 30 of those are expected to be Labour seats that would be lost. While Conservatives would only lose less than 15 seats, and you suddenly realise that the song that they're using for musical chairs is The Reigns of Castamere. Not only that, but up to 200 Labour seats will be affected overall by the boundary changes because they currently have fewer votes than the new quota, meaning that the boundaries would have to be moved wider in order to take in voters from other, probably more suburban, rural areas who'd be more likely to vote Conservative, completely changing the balance. And if these boundary changes go through, Jeremy Corbyn could lose his own seat, meaning he'd either have to take someone else's that has now merged with his, or step down as an MP. Or, you know, share a seat, but only have, like, one buttock on it most of the time, and that would really hurt after a while, and how are you meant to lead with a hurting buttock? Okay, okay, that isn't really a thing. Sorry. But add to all that the changes to the electoral register that knocked 1.4 million voters off the register in 2015, many of them suspected to be Labour as they were largely in student or urban areas, and it's really not looking very good. Also take into account that while he was still Chancellor, George Osborne announced short money cuts. Now I know short money sounds like a gangster rapper from the late 90s, but it's actually money given to opposition parties from the Treasury to assist in meeting costs. Osborne said that he'd be cutting this by 19%, which is quite a large amount, though it is still to be discussed in the Commons. But if it does go through, it'll add to all the money that Labour have lost from many of its donors leaving, and the £5 million bill for its EU campaigning, something that the 25 quid membership cost to vote in the leadership election nearly covered for them, but not quite. Which does make you wonder if actually, they do all really get along, but realise there's no better way to get people to pay up for a bit of funding than a pay-per-view scrap. So, how to tackle a lack of funding and an impossible amount of seats to gain? Well, either you concoct an evil plan that involves throwing a fox hunt where you put the fox on a speedboat in the Atlantic and watch the entire Tory party drown as they chase it into the sea. You win! 
or you form a coalition with other left-wing and centre-based parties, like the Green Party or Liberal Democrats, and call it something like Labgridem or Griboral, or any other character that will probably be in the next Star Wars film. A recent opinion poll of more than 2,000 people in August showed that they mostly class themselves now as centre more than left or right wing, so a coalition might be the best way to tackle that. Though, those were only 2,000 people, and those people were around during the day, and answered a withheld number, and probably enjoy homes under the hammer, so I'm not prepared to entirely trust it. Although, unfortunately, those are exactly the sort of people who also vote. But either way, a coalition is something Jeremy Corbyn has already said he won't do if he's leader again. The other option is that you come up with an actual opposition plan and try to work something out, so that people who are suffering from six years of austerity actually see you as a credible alternative, which is the sort of discussion the party should have. How to do that? You know, uniting to back whoever becomes leader in a few weeks. But why on earth would you do that when you can just shit on your own doorstep instead? It's far easier. And again, I tragically suspect that the name label will come to refer to just how much bloody hard work it is for them to get anything done. And yes, I've said that joke a lot on this podcast. It's very laboured. Ha! You win! And now, on that cheery note, back to Mark Avery. So going back to the flooding issue, you know, flooding's happening pretty much every single year now. And I've read... Not only have I read the arguments that obviously the the burning uh, of ground uh, for grouse shooting is is affecting it, but generally clearing uh, clearing ground for farming and things like that, and uh, you know reducing kind of um, drainage in, in the land, it seems to be the, one of the biggest problems. Um, and is that, I mean, to, personally to me, it does seem like it's a lot of people who own land going, well, I just want to do what I want with it. Is that is that the issue? I think that's quite a good way of expressing it, actually. It's a lot of people who own land who want to do what they want. And it's worse than that, actually, because, again, you're all paying for it. So through, um, this goes back to Brexit a bit, through the Common Agricultural Policy, uh, we are paying £3 billion a year to landowners in income support, actually. That's what, that's what it is. It's income support for landowners. And that income support goes to um, the richest people in the country, like the Duke of Westminster, as well as a lot of poor farmers trying to scrape a living. So we could, and, and, it, and so it goes to Grace owners too. And we could make a decision post Brexit about whether we continue to spend that money. Um, so that's we ought to think about that. The government ought to be giving us the choice of how to spend that uh, three billion pounds. Should we take a billion of it back and invest it in the health service or education rather than giving it to uh, some of the richest people in the country? I think we probably should. And that would have an impact on grey shooting, but it would have much bigger impacts too. Yeah, because also I suppose you'd think if, if we withdrew the money uh, f- from that area instead of giving it to, to rich landowners, that might save money in flood relief that you're going to have to hand out later anyway. Yeah, it would. And it's your money. The, the trouble is, trouble is with you townies, <laughs> you, you don't think quite enough about the countryside and you don't realise that you're paying for it. You might be sitting in a town... Um, but your taxes are going all over the countryside. So you're paying for this. 
So usually when you're paying for something, you want to have a say in how your money is spent. And we ought to have a big debate about how that £3 billion a year that it currently goes into agriculture, how it's spent in future. And that could be quite exciting, I think. Not just because of grouse shooting, but it would, it would certainly have implications for the future of grouse shooting. But it would have implications for all sorts of things. And it would, if we spent the money differently, you might get better hospitals, a better NHS, all sorts of things. It's a, it's a, it's a subject that society ought to decide on. Definitely. I mean, part of it is, uh, I'm sure, isn't there some resistance from uh, from you countryside lot in townies deciding what happens? You know, because uh, I know that um, there's been quite a large drive for rewilding uh, in the last couple of years, which I, I think personally is a fantastic idea. But I know there's a lot of uh, farmers that think it's a towny idea and, and don't want that to happen. Well, I think um, I think rewilding would generally be a good thing. It's quite difficult to see how it's going to happen um, without either making landowners do it or encouraging them to do it. And then you come back to that £3 billion a year that we're spending at the moment in basically income support for farmers. If we want rewilding, and rewilding would be uh, a way of storing more carbon, producing cleaner water, reducing flood risk, all sorts of benefits, but they're benefits that the landowner doesn't get him or herself. Sure. You're a farmer producing clean water, you don't get paid any more for the water that comes off your land uh, than if you're producing um, dirty water. So you don't put a lot of effort into those measures that would uh, produce clean water. But that is a societal uh, benefit. It benefits all of us if we don't have to pay the water company for cleaning up the water. So why don't we encourage the farmers with the money we're already paying them to farm in a way that reduces those costs? So I agree with you. Rewilding is a good idea. We ought to make it happen. And we, we're already spending the money that could encourage it to happen. Let's get on with it. Yeah, yeah, no, I, I definitely, definitely think so. Um, I, I suppose it's once again the much like with the countries dealing with climate change, it's it's looking at the longer term issue, which a lot of people that like to earn money don't. Uh, they like the shorter term money uh, sort of profiting uh, option. I think. Um, well, I think that's right, but it's also partly that we, the taxpayer, and the people who are actually paying for it, we haven't. We don't realise what's happening. So we haven't asked for a different deal. We haven't gone to our politicians and said, I've heard about this rewilding thing. I think it's a great idea. Um, let's do that. Uh, I want my money that you're spending at the moment, I want it spent in a different way. I'd like to see some rewilding, please. Otherwise, I'm not going to vote for you. We don't do that. We're not clear enough about setting the challenge to politicians to produce a better uh, future for all of us. So uh, we ought to do more of that. I'm all for people getting more actively engaged in these issues. 
Good. So that's a message for the listeners. Get out there. Uh, start annoying your MP about rewilding. Definitely. Um, Absolutely. And, and again, sort of, I suppose back to the the, the grass shooting issue in a way. Um, because, uh, as we were saying, part of it's to do with land ownership and people doing what they want. Uh, you wrote an article uh, last year about the, the kind of backdoor privatisation of the British woodlands. Um, it's been almost a year on since you wrote that. And I know there's now proposals to privatise the land registry and there's things like the infrastructure bill allowing fracking in private areas. I mean, do you think it looks likely that... that national parks and forests and things are going to remain in public ownership for much longer are we in danger of a lot of the country a lot more of the country being kind of privatized off and perhaps the land being used improperly because of that yes i think that is a danger and the this does come down to that whole so much comes back to brexit these days doesn't it sure it, it, it does come back to that whole business of whether we're going to make a better job of things on our own or not and what the membership of the eu has always given us is a backstop like i said earlier that british governments whenever they thought of something really stupid they've always had to think well i'm not sure we can get this past the eu uh, maybe we better not do it so that restraint is now kind of being removed or will be removed so we're going to have to uh, ask politicians to do a better job and that means we have to speak up and speak out because otherwise um, short-term interests are going to win over long-term ones and that's never well it's hardly ever a good idea no no, definitely not. Um, okay, so well, let's uh, slightly let's finish on a slightly more positive note. You started off very positively. I feel like I've driven you into <laughs> more pessimistic areas. I'm very sorry. This is what always happens on this show. Uh, we always end by going, "Well, everything's terrible, isn't it?" And uh, so, what what I'll ask to finish up. Um, are there things that you, because I think quite a lot of listeners uh, to this show, I assume, are quite sort of into environmental issues. Um, are there firstly sort of websites, podcasts, other things people should look at if they're interested in learning more about this or campaigning more? Uh, and also, are there things that you'd recommend people do? I know you've already said sort of uh, talk to your MP, um, maybe kind of push for things. Are there other uh, things that people could do if they want to campaign more uh, to kind of uh, get climate change uh, dealt with better in the UK? Absolutely. We are in charge. That is the positive message. We are in charge providing we mobilise and agitate. And I think things like this, having a chat with you is a great opportunity. Social media is fantastic. It's awful in some ways but it's a fantastic way of being able to find out what's happening and find out people who think the same as you there's always a danger you only listen to people who think the same as you but who are interested in the same things um who can tell you about stuff um so start with the environmental ngos greenpeace friends of the earth the rspb who i used to work for there's a whole bunch of them, some of them a bit stuffy, uh, some of them are very good. Uh, see what they're saying. Follow them on Twitter and Facebook. But also look to some of the um, 
other commentators, uh, Chris Packham has been a brilliant advocate for wildlife. Uh, he's he's been part of the campaign I've run against grouse shooting. Brian May uh, on badgers. Uh, find those people because they're moving quicker. Dominic Dyer on badgers as well, Badger Trust. Find those people on social media and see what they're saying. Um, I write a blog, so I ought to plug my blog. <laughs> yeah, do. Um, I write a blog called Standing Up for Nature. Um, if you put Mark Avery into Google, you'll find it. You'll find quite a lot about grouse shooting and stuff at the moment. But over time, I discuss the types of issues that we have today, uh, farming, marine conservation, which we haven't touched on, forestry, uh, climate change, all those issues. And there are lots of other people out there as well. Have a look. Read some books. Get involved. <laughs> Talk to people, talk to taxi drivers, talk to somebody sitting next to you on the bus, chat about it. That's, I always like the recommendation of read some books. I'm thoroughly back that. Um, <laughs> also, a very silly question, but you're, you're a bird watcher, and I know it's not spoke correctly, but your surname is Avery. Was that always in the stars then? <laughs> um, who knows? <laughs> not nominative to term. Absolutely, absolutely. Cold, isn't it? Um, <laughs> Uh, I've, had, I've had to live with that for quite a long time. Maybe <laughs> I it bet. Was. Huge thanks to Mark for the chat. Uh, you can find Mark on Twitter at Mark Avery, that's A-V-E-R-Y, or his website, markavery.info. If you'd like to sign his petition to ban driven grouse shooting, uh, you can find links to it on both his Twitter and on his website. Uh, and also Mark's latest book, Inglorious Conflict in the Uplands, which is all about banning driven grouse shooting, uh, is available from all places uh, that do books. And I mean, sell books. Don't go into like a bookies and ask. That will just confuse them and you'll be made to leave. I'm now back to needing some guests for future shows, so please do send in suggestions my way uh, via Twitter at Bro, the Facebook group, or partlypoliticalbroadcast.gmail.com, and let me know who you'd like me to fire questions at. Uh, or, you know, just ask them questions, which is a lot less aggressive and far more likely to work. I mean, if I start killing off guests with some sort of question gun, I'll probably get in trouble, and I doubt I'll get many more people applying. Will it be Clinton or will it be Trump? One's all mean and one speaks from his rump. One's quite ruthless, one has no brain, but one of them's gonna win the presidential campaign. Oh yeah, it's the US presidential campaign. The US election, the global political version of a would-you-rather with no comfortable or preferred answers, is rolling on. Over the last two weeks, information has surfaced that racist blister Donald Trump both illegally donated money via the Trump Foundation to a political group in 2013, but also that many of his charitable donations aren't actually from his money, but instead he gave away other people's money pretending that it's his own. Donald Trump hasn't actually given a donation via the Trump Foundation himself since 2008, as any donations after that were donated by others to the Foundation and then he just passed them off to other charities as his own. Then there's several donations that Trump said that he made uh, where the foundation never actually passed on the money, including a veterans group who Trump held a telethon for, raising $5 million, but the group only ever received a $1,000 donation, which is both horrific and something that I reckon we've all thought about doing with any charity money we've ever raised, but then suddenly realised, oh wait, I'm not the worst human being on the planet, and avoided it. On the anniversary of 9-11 tragedy this week, Trump also repeated that he helped out at Ground Zero on the day, when witnesses at the time say that's complete and utter bullshit. 
And instead, footage from the day has surfaced of him on WWOR TV News boasting about how now the Twin Towers are down, Trump Tower is the tallest building in New York, which is not only sociopathic, but also the most pyrrhic victory you could ever have. Like Stephen Baldwin boasting about being the very best Baldwin, but only because all of his brothers had suddenly died. But none of this matters because Hillary Clinton was ill at the 9-11 tribute on Sunday, claiming she was overheating, you know, like a robot might. And then she fell slightly, like a robot might, and her team revealed that she has pneumonia, which robots can't get, so very smart move then. What this does all mean is that Hillary Clinton has unintentionally played into all Trump's nonsense, which he's been spinning for a while, about Hillary not being healthy enough to be president. One of Trump's spokespeople has previously said that she has brain damage, Trump's constantly said she's not up for the job, and even with a doctor's report from Clinton's doctor, many of Trump's supporters think that she isn't capable of doing it. And yes, that's despite the fact that Donald Trump constantly looks like he has severe jaundice, and all pictures of Trump's doctor make it look like he's being treated by someone who dressed up as a doctor so not to get detected in the hospital when stealing meds. Unfortunately, all the idiots now think they're absolutely justified in saying that Hillary isn't healthy enough to lead, and timing-wise, this incident followed Hillary Clinton making a massive mistake of saying that half of all Trump supporters are deplorable, which, while was completely true, won't exactly win her any more fans. It's a bit like the US version of Gordon Brown's bigot gate when he called a woman a bigot because she was a bigot, and everyone then got all angry and said that was wrong, despite constantly wanting everyone else to be honest about what spades are called. So now both US candidates have to provide information about their health and the world can only hope that DNA tests prove Donald Trump is actually part orangutan from Indonesia and doesn't qualify to be president at all in the first place. This week, skin wrapped around disappointment, Liam Fox called British businesses fat and lazy, despite it being his only fucking job to promote us to the world post a Brexit that he helped cause. I honestly think if a slug crawled into a hessian sack with a mouth drawn on it and moved around a bit, it would be a better Secretary of International Trade and human being than twice disgraced MP Liam Fox. So I asked you, the people, for a slogan for Dr Fox, yes he's actually a doctor, I don't know how that happened, uh, that he could use to promote British trade in his well-known lack of style. At Vlizzy Rascal went for, trust me, I'm a doctor. Uh, at Clownfist said, uh, I'm too fat and lazy to answer this question. Um, at Bobador, he sent a few in. Uh, the first one is uh, golf is for wimps. And he sent a picture of a man golfing with a big belly saying, are you British business body ready? Which is excellent. That would work brilliantly as a Tory campaign poster. Uh, Bobador also sent in, does exactly what it says on the bus. Asterix, subject to change without notice. Big Sexy Neil said Britain, meh, which is a sort of British enthusiasm I'd like to see on an advertising campaign. Uh, Lord Aldo uh, said, uh, need a special advisor to help you with your business? I know the very fellow. At Ed underscore son said, don't be fat and lazy, fraudulently claim expenses like crazy. Extra points for rhyming. Uh, Matthew G. Pierce said, uh, share a bedroom with your lover, score a hole in one, just please don't mention golf. Um, Matt B. Cooper went for, I can't believe it's not better. Oh, there's something so tragic about that. And that's more, I believe that's more honestly British values than make Britain great again. Really, what we want is just make Britain cope again. That's all we need. Um, Ethan D. Lawrence uh, went for, I mean, pff, I don't know. Uh, we're pretty keen, I guess. Want to see my stamp collection? Think that would definitely work. Uh, at Fluff Logic went for please, they have my family, which is the sort of lie Liam Fox would probably say. At Corporate Gorilla went for British business, playing to your tune. If you can hum it, with Liam at the helm, we sure as hell can fiddle it. Lovely work. 
Jacob Johansson uh, went for we're selling everything and we're easily duped. That's far too honest for a British slogan. Um, at Gibby McDibby went for buy British. I certainly did when I was revealed to have overclaimed by more than any other MP in the expenses scandal. Lovely. And at the Ash Preston went for I'm Liam Fox. And trust me when I say I spare no expenses promoting UK international trade. Lovely work, all of you. And that's all for this week's episode of Partly Political Broadcast. Don't forget to review us on iTunes or contact me via at Bro on Twitter, uh, the Bro Facebook group, or partlypoliticalbroadcast at gmail.com. Maybe even just to let me know what type of grapefruit you are. Or other fruit. I'm not fruitist. Pomegranates, welcome. Uh, also, please do grab a copy of my stand-up special, The World is Full of Idiots, Let's Live in Space. Uh, it is just three quid from my website, uh, tnndoyev.co.uk. And once again, thanks to Mark Struthers for his wonderful sound editing. I'll be back next week when it's highly likely that Liam Fox will have called a French minister a cheese-eating surrender monkey before saying how only idiots leave the EU. This week's episode was brought to you by the number £3.9 billion and the words, Let's turn Parliament into a giant water park! ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.